Well, if you've been tracking along with us, you know that we are deep into a series here on my teaching Sundays. This is part 16 today. Uh, in the first few weeks of this series, uh, all the way back in December of 2019, remember 2019? Remember how, what a boring, normal year that was? Anyway, in the first couple of weeks of this series, we said that as you read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the account of Jesus' life and ministry, if you read through looking for the thing that Jesus talks about most, it'll become crystal clear to you what Jesus talks about most is the kingdom, especially when you read the Gospel of Matthew, nearly 50 times in 28 chapters, what he talked about all the time, what he was about, really, was simply the kingdom of God. We said that the story of the Bible is actually a story about kingdoms. So we took some, uh, some time a few months ago to establish the framework through which we see the kingdom of God coming to earth. And then we asked this question, what does it actually mean to live under this king's reign? In answer to that, we said that an encounter with Jesus forces every single one of us to deal with the core issues, the darkest parts of our character, and then to allow his mercy, his love, his wisdom to redefine who we are, to change the way that we engage with our Heavenly Father and with the people around us. So that's how we got into this topic back in December. So we've been talking about the kingdom of God. We started in chapter 4, actually, where Jesus kind of arrives on the scene and he launches his public ministry and announces that the kingdom of God is arriving. And since then, we've been in chapters 5, 6, and 7 in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount or Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way to be a human in the reality of the kingdom of God. It's really about God's value system. And his kingdom is a heavenly kingdom that lands smack in the middle of everyday life. And even here, Jesus said, in the harshness, in the mess of earth. Jesus' kingdom invites us to immerse ourselves in the whole gospel that he came to, to preach. Yet we get to listen and consider and think through the incredible possibilities of kingdom living as Jesus taught it. And the practical promise of our faith journey is this, that as we live in faithfulness to Christ the King, His reign will have a transformational effect on us. Anything less than that is not what Jesus came to earth to tell. We said that in His kingdom, Jesus is looking for a different kind of righteousness, a righteousness that emanates from a heart that's been transformed by Jesus, a heart whose driving motivation is love. Now, if you've missed any of these messages so far, I really encourage you to go back and fill in the gaps. You can listen from your computer uh, on the media player on our website. Uh, you can watch some of the more, more, the, rec the more recent messages there. And of course, we recommend you subscribe to our podcast. That way it just shows up in your podcast feed every Monday or Tuesday. You never have to miss any of the teaching content. And, and like I say all the time, it's really important, especially when we're teaching through a passage of Scripture, uh, like we are with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, to kind of hear everything in its context. All right, so that's where we've been. Last time we were in verses 7 through 11 of Matthew 7. So we're going to pick up in verse 12. Matthew 7, verse 12. So in everything, <coughs> so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Let's read that again. Uh, you could even go ahead and read that out loud uh, with me if that doesn't feel too weird. So in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. 
Okay, so this is a super familiar verse, whether you've grown up in the church, uh, whether this is your first time in church, you've probably heard part of this verse and maybe even committed it to memory, maybe even tried to live your life by it to some extent. But let's do like we've been doing throughout this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, let's work through it phrase by phrase. The verse starts with the word, so, which can also be translated, therefore. And whenever you read a so or a therefore, it's a signpost pointing not forward, but backward to everything that the writer just said. So in this case, everything that Jesus has just said about the Father and his love for you as his son or his daughter, his goodness, his generosity toward you, towards us, it says, if you then, even though you're sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So, in light of that, in light of the Father's goodness and generosity, Jesus has this to say. So in everything, which in the Greek means in everything, all that you do, work, play, rest, your whole life, do to others, pause. This is fascinating to me. The word that Jesus uses here that we translate others, it means all people, okay? He, he doesn't use the word Adelphoi, which is very similar, but it's different. Adelphoi means your brother, your sister, your family, kind of your tribe. Jesus doesn't use that word. He uses the word anthropoi, which is all people. In other places, it's translated humanity. So family member or stranger friend or enemy, same gender, different gender, same color skin, different color skin, same religion, different religion. See how broad in scope Jesus is here? In everything, due to all people, here's a line we're all familiar with. This is this incredible rule to live life by. Here it is. Do to others what you would have them do to you. So Jesus offers this simple rule of thumb, this guide for our behavior for how we should treat one another. You ask yourself, what would you want people to do for you? Then grab the initiative and go do that for them. You see what Jesus is saying? That no matter the person or the situation, the general rule for how to relate to other people is to just stop for a minute, visualize life in their skin, imagine how you would want to be treated if you were them, and then go do that. He goes on, still in verse 12. For this sums up the law and the prophets. <clears throat> this is the essence, in other words, of all that's taught in the law and the prophets. So he's referring to what we know as the Old Testament, the Jewish scripture. This is uh, what much of the Bible is all about, God's law and the prophets. So if you're new to Jesus' teaching, uh, you're probably thinking, well, law and the prophets, what is that? This was standard first century Jewish language for the Bible of the day. The law, or in Hebrew, the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all written by Moses. And then the prophets were kind of everything else, not just Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, but everything else because they considered anyone who authored parts of the Holy Scripture to be a prophet because they were speaking on behalf of God. So they just summed it up by saying the law and the prophets. And what we have in verse 12 is basically Jesus' one-line summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount, which just shows you how much of the Sermon on the Mount is, is really about relationship, right? Which shows how much of following Jesus is about relationship, about how much of life in the kingdom of God is about relationship. And do you know, and this is just a little confession time for me, did you know that, I, just, I was just thinking about this this week, that almost all of my sins have to do with my relationships, with what I say or do or don't say or don't do, or even why or how 
I say something or do something? So it should come as no surprise that Jesus' one-line summary is to do to others what you'd have them do to you. For Jesus, you just can't separate your relationship from God the Father from your relationship with your mom or your dad or your friend or your roommate or your spouse or your ex or the person to your right or your left or to me or to whoever it is. It's all wrapped up together in this thing that Jesus calls life in the kingdom of God. So first, Jesus is summarizing where he's been in the Sermon on the Mount, but that's not all he's doing. He's also summarizing the entire Bible up to that point. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which is simply an account of Jesus' ministry from the perspective of this man called Matthew, if you keep reading, Jesus is asked this question, what's the greatest command in all the Bible? Basically, Jesus, how do you summarize the Bible? Like, there's a lot there. It's a thick book. What's the essence of it? And Jesus answered by quoting two commands. First, he quoted Deuteronomy 6, 5, where Moses wrote, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the most important command and rule for life in all of the Bible, according to Jesus, to love God. And the second, he said, is very similar. And this is from Leviticus 19, verse 18. And it's love your neighbor as yourself. So listen, here's how it works. If you have to distill everything the Bible has to say about relationships down to a singular singular command, down to a singular thing that we must do, it's love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're teaching the Bible and you want to distill it down to a catchy, more tweetable, easy to remember one-liner, or maybe even a point of action, uh, like how do I love my neighbor? A good option is, quote, do to others what you'd have them do to you. And Jesus is so creative, he's just so brilliant in his teaching, I'd argue that this is the most famous of all the sayings of Jesus. We know it as the golden rule. And, and, and you ever think about why is it called the golden rule? It, it came to be called the golden rule from the third century. From the year 225 to 235, the Roman emperor was Alexander Severus. And he was actually quite tolerant of both Jews and Christians. And he displayed images of both Abraham and Jesus in his palace. He prayed every morning in his private chapel, though it isn't clear who he was praying to. And he certainly wasn't really a follower of Jesus. But by the time of his reign, this saying of Jesus had kind of spread across the Mediterranean. And Alexander Severus thought this was such a brilliant and wise saying to live by that he had it inscribed in gold on the wall of his chamber, his room, in his palace. Hence the name, the Golden Rule. But the Golden Rule, as you know, is not the only rule to live by. Philosophers have long argued that there are at least three rules that we live by. The iron rule, the silver rule, the golden rule. The iron rule is do to others what they do to you. And some of you are like, wait, that's not a thing. Nobody puts that on a sticker on their car or posts that on Facebook or hangs it on their wall. Oh, it's a thing. It's, a, it's retaliation in kind. It's proportional response. It's if they, they hit you, you hit them back. It sounds like, well, I was just defending myself. <laughs> and, and it isn't even always a negative thing. It could be you compliment me, I compliment you, you buy my coffee, I buy you lunch. But more likely, it's you criticize me, I gossip about you behind your back, you make a snarky comment to me, I'm passive aggressive toward you. This is the vicious cycle that humanity is still locked in. It's like the endless game of emotional ping pong, and it is, listen, the lowest level of maturity. And sadly, many people never rise above this level of maturity. 
So that's the iron rule. And that's where a lot of us tend to do a lot of life. Then you have the silver rule, which is don't do to others what you would not have them do to you, right? This is the negative version of Jesus saying it's the next level of maturity. It's a giant leap forward uh, in both personal development and human progress. And it's not a new idea. It's ancient. In fact, it predates Jesus. 500 years before Jesus walked on the earth, Confucius was asked, what's the most important thing? And he said, in a word, reactivity. And then he said, quote, whatever you do not want others to do to you, do not do to them. In Buddhism, it's that central idea of do no harm. In the few years after Confucius and still long before Jesus' time, uh, Greek philosophers known as the Stoics said, what you do not wish to be done to you, do not do to anyone else. So my point is, this rule in some form or another was all over the ancient world long before Jesus of Nazareth, and it's a great rule to live by, but, but notice when you phrase it in the negative and not in the positive, at first it just kind of sounds like semantics, but people say that, well, you know, Jesus, Confucius, Buddha, they're all kind of the same thing. But then you think about it, there's a very big difference between not doing something to cause suffering and doing something to alleviate suffering. Let me repeat that. There's a very big difference between not doing something to cause suffering and doing something to alleviate suffering. Like, do no harm is a great idea. As far as it goes, I'm all for it. But it's not the same thing as love your enemy. Don't oppress the poor is one thing. Do justice on behalf of the poor is a whole other level. My point is the overall do no harm is great, but it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't get you to love. It doesn't get you to action. It doesn't get you to justice. It doesn't get you to social change. So we need to kind of climb the heights of what has been called the Everest of ethical teaching. We need the golden rule, the positive form. Do to others what you'd have them do to you. Now, as far as we can tell, we don't know for sure. And yes, there had been versions of the saying before Jesus, but it had always been expressed in the negative. So this is brand new teaching in Jesus' day. As far as we can tell, nobody had ever said it this way before. It's way ahead of its time. In fact, I think it's still ahead of its time. I mean, we think we're so advanced in our thinking, in our understanding of hum the human condition. You know, we're all about love and acceptance. But when you dig into it, for all the talk of love and acceptance, whether it's in society as a whole or even within the church, what we really mean when we say that is tolerance and niceness, right? I mean, I don't judge you. You don't judge me. What's good for you is good for you. It's none of my business. Who am I to judge? And I'm all for tolerance and, and niceness. But that's still kind of silver rule level of maturity, not golden rule. For Jesus, love is less of a feeling and more of an action. It's something you do. Because notice he doesn't say, feel warm, fuzzy emotions towards people the way that you would want them to feel warm, fuzzy emotions toward you. That's not the teaching. There's a reason that's not a famous saying. If you define love as a feeling, a warm, positive emotion, you get in trouble really fast. It's far too shallow and flimsy of a definition of love for Jesus. For Jesus, if I'm reading his definition of love right, it's to put another person's well-being ahead of our own, to actively seek the well-being of someone else, even if it comes at great cost to you. And it is something that you do with your mind, with your body, with your mouth, with your money, with your time, do to others what you'd have them do to you. Take the initiative, 
Get out there, get some dirt under your fingernails, inconvenience yourself. Put someone else's worth ahead of your own value, their happiness ahead of your own. Take it to the next level. Think about them in a thoughtful way. Slow down long enough to kind of get into their life. Think about how you would want to be loved if you were in their situation, and then come up with small, creative acts of tangible, ordinary, normal, humble, beautiful love toward them. That is the way of Jesus. See how radical and ahead of its time that was and still is? So, which rule are you living by? Which rule is the default setting of your relational posture toward your family, toward your community, toward your spouse or your mom or your dad, toward your boss, toward your coworker, toward your ex, toward that friend who betrayed you? Can you imagine... If we were to live by the golden rule on a consistent basis in every relationship and in every interaction with others. So here's an example. You're like, what would that look like? Well, here's an example. Let's just say a husband and wife are having, um, let's just say they're having a, a discussion. We'll call it a discussion. Let's say it's a fight about the grocery budget. But it's never actually about the grocery budget, all right? It's about your mother-in-law, your family of origin, your work ethic, your sense of responsibility. You know, just so like hypothetical scenario, just drop yourself into this situation. And as you are like preparing your verbal arsenal for your preemptive nuclear verbal strike, for some reason you have this saying of Jesus come to mind, do to others as you'd have them do to you. What if instead of what was about to come out of your mouth, what if you were just take a deep breath, step back, invite the Holy Spirit into the moment, maybe take another deep breath and maybe go for a walk? (laughs) What if you were to bless and not curse, accept responsibility, apologize? You know, I'm sorry, and this is really a silly thing to fight about. Imagine what that would do to shift the relationship in that moment. Or maybe you're at work and it turns out Darwin was right. It is survival of the fittest, you know? And in your workplace, a a coworker or a boss does something hurtful, maybe harmful to your reputation or to your career. So as you're prepping your defense, but what if, you know, what if before you send the email, what if before you knock on the boss's door, before you speak up, what if you were to allow the Holy Spirit into the quiet of your person, to to your inner person, to, to speak over your life? Do to others as you'd have them do to you? What if you were to entrust the future of your career to God in that moment? And it doesn't mean be a doormat. It doesn't mean you don't speak up for yourself. But what if instead you were to bless and do not curse, to not send the email, to let your actions speak louder than your words? What if that's the thing that could shift the relationship in the situation in that moment? See, what I'm getting at here. You know, these sayings of Jesus, whether you grew up in the church or you've heard this a thousand times or this is your first time ever in church, the odds are you already know this saying because it's like who's, like, who's down on the golden rule? We all think it's a great idea. The danger is that familiarity, it may not actually breed contempt most of the time. It might even be worse. It definitely breeds apathy. We just get used to it. And if we're aware of it and we're not acting on it, It's just an abstract idea that we get numb to. We forget its power uh, to reshape how we relate to people. So don't let apathy 
overcome your experience. You know, you're putting into action this teaching of Jesus. Now, my point is not this week, you know, we're just going to try really hard in the week ahead to live by the golden rule. My point is, what if? What if there's a world where the golden rule becomes the narrative and the background of your mental chatter? You know, it just becomes this story in the back of your mind that you believe and that you live into. And what if with every person in every situation you were to simply pray, Holy Spirit, Spirit, bring to mind the golden rule every time it's necessary? And what if when that comes to mind, when the Holy Spirit speaks, what if you were to just slow down, put your phone away, step back, take a deep breath, press pause on your verbal assault? Just take a moment, let it play in your mind. Let it sink to your heart. What if in that moment you just pray a simple prayer, perhaps the most effective prayer ever prayed, just pray for help? Because sometimes that's all we have. And, and willpower just won't get you there. It doesn't work with the hard stuff. Willpower is a great thing. Get your willpower muscles stronger, but it won't get you there. Think about this. Jesus started with the law and the prophets. And the law consisted of 613 rules or commands that's just in the Torah. That's not to mention the rest of the Old Testament. And he got it down to one, at least when it comes to interpersonal relationships, and two when it comes to life as a whole. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And as a practical expression, like, how do we do that, Jesus? Do to others what you'd have them do to you. For Jesus, this is the rule to live by. So I want to offer you just this idea. <coughs> what if we were to live by this rule? What if you were to live by this rule? What if in every situation, in every relationship, the narrative script in the back of your mind is due to others what I'd have them do to me? What if we were to live that way consistently in our marriages, in our family life, in our homes, in our friendships, in our workplace, in our church, in our community? Here's the thing. We've been uh, so conditioned to believe um, at least two lies. One of those lies is that the main point of life is to be happy. Honestly, the older I get, uh, the less I believe that's true. Viktor Frankl was a 20th century psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor. His most famous work is his book, Man's Search for Meaning, which 60 years after its publication in English remains on Amazon's top 100 books. He said it this way. The main point in life is not happiness, but meaning. What we need far more than happiness is we need meaning and purpose in life. Because our world has plenty of happiness to go around. Jesus is not just another form of happiness. Because, I mean, like, you, you want happiness. And if you want happiness, can I just say, have you ever been to Five Guys? I mean, a Five Guys cheeseburger and fries, pure happiness, man. And then just follow that with a quick stop at Starbucks for a salted cream cold foam cold brew. I mean, come on. Talk about happiness. But if all, if all you're after in life is happiness, there are quicker, easier means to get there than Jesus. But it won't give you meaning. You can make all the money you want. You can gain all the fame you want. 
You can curate your image on social media. You can drive the newest car every year. You can go out to brunch every single weekend. You can take the best vacations and post them on Facebook. You can work where you get ahead in your career and you're always climbing that ladder. You can do it all and you can have it all. And at the end of the day, all of that is chasing after the wind. Because happiness is still not the same thing as joy. For that, you need to live for what you were created for. The meaning and the purpose for which you were handmade by God himself. To be with Jesus, to follow Jesus, to become more like Jesus, and to do what he did. So the first lie is that the most important thing is just to be happy. The second lie that we've fallen for uh, is that in order to be happy, you got to look out for yourself. You got to look out for number one. It's a dog eat dog world out there. You just got to take care of number one. You put yourself first. Be true to yourself, whatever makes you happy. Do you know what I've come to notice? And maybe it's just me, but the people that I know who live by that rule to be true to yourself, to pursue what makes you happy, doesn't God want me to be happy, that the point of life is to be happy, are some of the most unhappy, negative, pessimistic, selfish, restless people I know. Jesus said in his kingdom, when we're doing life according to the values of his here but not yet fully here kingdom, the last will be first and the first will be last. The humble will be exalted and the exalted will be humbled. It's an upside down way of of Jesus. And at first you're like, wait, really? The main point isn't happiness? Yeah, that's chasing after the wind. So you live for something else and then you discover happiness? Exactly. So in the week ahead, May the Spirit of God and the teachings of Jesus and the biblical community that you live in, may all of that lead you and guide you into a life marked by the golden rule. May the Holy Spirit bring to mind Jesus saying, as you go through your week, in conversation after conversation, conflict after conflict, moment after moment, may you slow down long enough to hear His voice in your inner world. May the Holy Spirit overflow from you and through you in small creative acts of love and joy and peace with everyone that you come into contact with. And may, may we not live for happiness, but may we discover on the other side of our life with Jesus a joy that is both deep and wide. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's becoming crystal clear to us as we've navigated through Jesus' teaching here in Matthew for these last seven months that we have a responsibility in the kingdom of God. That if we're going to follow Jesus into life in his kingdom, into this radical new way of doing life, of being human, that it's just that, completely new, counterintuitive, countercultural in so many ways. So Heavenly Father, today we want to give some serious consideration to what this means for us to come to terms with the truth that this isn't about simply adopting some new ideas or some fresh ways of looking at the world or people around us, but that it is, and it is that, Lord, but it's so much more, that it's a call to action. Heavenly Father, this verse that we've talked about today, the golden rule, it's calling us out of apathy. It's calling us out of defensiveness. It's calling us out of our pride, It's calling us out of a spirit of condescension. It's calling us to a whole new way to be human, a whole new way of interacting with the people around us, with one another, with all the one another's in our lives. Not just the ones that we think are somehow deserving of this kind of approach to life, to this kind of other's first treatment, but everyone that we're in relationship with, 
everyone that we interact with, everyone that we come into contact with. God, we believe truths like this one have the potential to transform us at the very core of who we are. So God, in this moment, we invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to continue the work of renewing our minds and healing our souls, so we can look at those around us and know that they have worth, to know that they deserve the very best of what we can bring in their direction, that they deserve all the value that we can add to their lives. God, I can hardly imagine a church, a community where this is true of us on a consistent basis. I can hardly imagine the force for good and hope and healing that would be in the world around us. So Jesus, thank you for calling us into your life and your kingdom, not only in the life to follow, but in the here and now. May every one of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, may we take to heart this powerful teaching. May we put it into action today and in all the days ahead for the praise of your name, for the glory of your name forever and ever. And we pray this in Jesus' name.